Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And I hope you're doing well, everybody. Jim McCarron's back with another edition of The Good, The Bad, and The TV on the number one podcast network for professionals. It's the Believe Podcast Network. Look for us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Check us out, too, on Believe.com, where you can find information on advertising on this or any of the Believe podcasts. Now, join with me. Let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1992. Another election year. We know how it turns out. Clinton over Bush and Perot. Remember Perot? But does a reminder of how it begins suggest anything about the vagaries of politics in this country? Tom Harkin, anyone? He wins the Iowa, Idaho, and New Hampshire primaries, after all. In 1992, everybody's reading The Firm, working with Windows 3.1, watching L.A. fall to Rodney King riots, visiting the new Mall of America, laughing at Sinead O'Connor on Saturday Night Live, buying Dr. Dre's solo debut album, sitting through Whitney Houston's first movie, mourning the end of Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, wrestling with Arthur Ashe's AIDS announcement, he'll die in a year, mocking Dan Quayle, who's chastising Murphy Brown, and saying hello briefly to one of the worst TV shows ever made. Appropriately, it's called Whoops. Airing on Fox, Whoops is about the six survivors of an accidentally triggered nuclear holocaust who have to go about restarting civilization together. Because, you know, TV. Created by Gary Jacobs, who should know better as one of the guys behind Empty Nest and Newhart. Produced by Wit Thomas Productions, who don't. Not without usual third partner, Susan Harris. It lasts all of 10 episodes, disparaged as Gilligan's Three Mile Island. The sitcom and its reception are best summed up by a critic who suggests that the best part of a post-apocalyptic world is that there's no TV, and thus, there's no whoops. It's one of the biggest turkeys in TV history. Here's a grossly unfair list of nine more series that stand out as among the worst throughout eight decades of misfires and bad ideas, and what were they thinkings? Number nine, Super Train. Super Train is a 1979 anthology series about the day-to-day life aboard a coast-to-coast nuclear-powered bullet train. It's a third-place NBC's attempt to duplicate the success of ABC's The Love Boat, which launches 18 months earlier. Each episode brings together the train's regular staff to interact with various guest stars who come aboard for a few days' worth of travel-related adventure, during which things happen, just like the love boat. Instead of romance, though, Supertrain has intrigue. Instead of the Lido deck, it has a discotheque 
Instead of producer Aaron Spelling, it has producer Dan Curtis. Instead of good ratings, it has horrible reviews. Instead of nine seasons, it has nine episodes. Everything about the series, from inspiration to execution, is an expensive, a multi-million dollar expensive mistake, and a glaring headline-making one at that. Supertrain, writes Gwen Inat in a 2014 avclub.com retrospective with the headline, The Horrors of Supertrain. She writes, Supertrain is the gold standard against which all other television bombs are measured. It was so heinous, so horrible, that it nearly bankrupted an entire network. End quote. Yes, Supertrain is to NBC what Heaven's Gate, the movie, will be to United Artists, the studio, a year from now. Nuclear power or no, this train has zero passengers, at least those watching. NBC reroutes it after four in-time period airings, dropping it around its schedule en route to the steel scrapyard after nine episodes. Six years after its merciful cancellation, one of its creators, Earl Wallace, wins an Oscar for co-writing Witness. Five years after that, Donald Westlake, its other creator, is nominated for an Oscar for writing The Grifters. Number eight, Coprock. It's not that Stephen Bochco can do wrong in his early years as producer. He can, and he does. Basity Blues, anyone? Richie Brockelman, Private Eye? But nothing he does proves wronger than Cop Rock. An all-singing police show that airs on ABC in 1990 at the height of his producer power. TV Guide will end up calling it the single most bizarre TV musical of all time. Cop Rock is easier to describe Hill Street Blues with music, than it is to sit through, from a main title sequence that shows its cast as themselves, watching and listening as Randy Newman sings its theme song, to the scene in the pilot, in which a jury delivers its verdict in a gospel number, accompanied by a piano-playing court clerk. Judge to clerk. Hit it. The show's an immediate failure, but proves it's nothing if not committed to the end to its curious premise. Its 11th and final episode ends with the cast gathered on a soundstage, fourth wall broken, singing about ABC canceling the show. Yes, it includes the lyric, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Yes, it's at that very point that a very fat lady shows up to sing. And yes, the fat lady is black. Number seven, The Ropers. One of two sitcom failures in TV history, saddled with the label Worst Spinoff Ever, 1979's The Ropers, lasts a total of about a year. It's born of TV's number one sitcom, Three's Company, with the neighboring landlords on that show, Stanley and Helen Roper, played by Norman Fell and Audrey Lindley, giving up their Santa Monica apartment building and moving to a new townhouse they purchase further inland but still on L.A.'s west side. Why anyone would give up Santa Monica for Cheviot Hills is the first of its many problems. The second is that from the very start, The Ropers is not about anything. TV spinoffs typically elevate supporting characters to lead roles 
by having them leave their old lives and branching out to new ones. They join the military or they get married or they have surgery and undergo some kind of change in their lives or they go on to new jobs, move to new cities, certainly inhabit some new kind of life in which new situations can be explored and new stories can be told. But in the Ropers, retired and bickering, Helen and Stanley Roper moved just six miles. Where they're still retired and bickering, Helen and Stanley Roper. No new city, no new lives, no new jobs, no new anything, except for one set of new and uninteresting neighbors with whom they share a wall in one of the most unusually laid out townhouse complexes ever constructed. All of which begs the third problem with the show. On Three's Company, Stanley Roper is a seen-only sporadically asshole. And wife Helen is a seen-only sporadically nag. On the Ropers, they're each of those things for an entire half hour. And the new characters next door are a mix of both, including an incredibly unctuous young boy character whose appeal is just this side of Cousin Oliver. So why are we watching? After a reasonable start in the ratings as a mid-season replacement, wisely scheduled after its incredibly popular mothership show, we're not. Especially come its first full season that fall, when a misguided ABC shuffles its winning sitcoms deck so badly that each series on the network, as well as the network itself, comes up with losing hands. The Ropers is soon canceled. Good for TV, but bad for Norman Fell. The actor only agrees to do the spinoff in the first place if ABC vows he can return to Three's Company if it doesn't work. They say yes. It doesn't. They say no. Number six, Joni Loves Chachi. The other of the two sitcoms in TV history Saddled with the label worst spinoff ever, Joni Loves Chachi actually edges out the Ropers by dint of the fact that at least the Ropers doesn't feature the sound of Scott Bayo singing, which Joni Loves Chachi does each week, not just with co-star Aaron Moran in the spinoff's bizarre main titles, but in a performance piece each episode, the show after all being about its lead characters, once living in Milwaukee with their families now on their own in Chicago, where they're pursuing music careers. Because, well, TV. Joni Loves Chachi is a 1982 spinoff of the long-running Happy Days, which this year is long, long, long past its top 10 prime, and its ability to launch a spinoff the way it does so successfully six years ago with Laverne and Shirley. But unlike the experienced and seasoned stars of the Ropers, Aaron Moran and Scott Bayo are not capable of enough actors. Lasting just 17 episodes to Happy Days 255, Joni Loves Chachi is also just plain poorly written. For his part, Bayo will later tell an interviewer that the show fails because the writers don't know the characters and that some of the people on the show, quote-unquote, had chemical issues. Okay, then. Unlike poor Mr. Roper, however, both Joni and Chachi are invited to return to their mothership show, staying aboard until its own end two years later. 
Number five, work it. The only thing to know about work it, the chief thing to know, an ABC comedy about two guys who resort to dressing as women in order to find jobs in a woeful economy, is that the print advertisement for its premiere features its two male leads in dresses and heels, seen from behind, standing at urinals, each supposedly with a hand on his dick, pissing. That and the fact that the year the show comes to air is 2012, the one in the 21st century. Work It is flushed after just two episodes. Number four, you're in the picture. It's a game show of sorts, but this 1961 one airing wonder is worthy of the top 10 scripted turkeys list, if only because of what happens the week it's supposed to air its second episode. Host Jackie Gleason, reigning king of TV comedy, thanks to his variety show and to the honeymooners, appears on stage by himself with an apology for the first one, saying the show in which celebrities place their faces into a hole cut out of life-sized illustrations of famous people or events or situations, and then ask yes or no questions of the host in order to guess what picture they're a part of, was horrible and will not be back. He calls it a catastrophe, the biggest bomb in the history of television, he says. So embarrassing that not even the stagehands want to be known as part of it. Quote-unquote, they don't want to be identified with this thing. They have wives and children and are respected members of their community. Gleason even reads some of the bad reviews aloud on the air. Writes newspaper columnist Milton Bass, after You're in the Pictures one episode, quote, It didn't just bomb. No, it lay there in shivering agony, naked to the world, broken, beaten, skinned alive, and expired slowly agonizingly beyond pity, contempt, fear, or favor. End quote. Time magazine one-ups the review, going so far as to call You're in the Picture the worst show in the 13-year history of television. Number three, co-ed fever. Back in the fall of 1978, in the wake of the smash summer hit Animal House, all three broadcast networks fast-tracked development and production of college-life sitcoms in order to cash in on the movie. The mission, make it look like Animal House and get it on the air as soon as possible. All three new shows premiere in the same 17-day period that winter. Delta House on ABC is first out of the gate. It's touted as the official Animal House sitcom adapted from the movie. NBC's Brothers and Sisters shows up three days later, January 21st, airing right after the Super Bowl. And two weeks after that, CBS's Co-Ed Fever brings up the rear, airing immediately following the highly anticipated first-time airing of Best Picture Oscar winner Rocky. TV viewers are smarter than Bluto, though. There's a difference between a raunchy John Belushi movie and a primetime sitcom. Delta House and Brothers and Sisters are maligned, but they make it as far as April before being canceled. But Coed Fever, about the shenanigans at Baxter College's Brewster House, 
while co-ed fever doesn't make it past Monday. It's canceled 12 hours after its one Sunday night airing. It's not even the premiere, though. It's a sneak preview. So co-ed fever is so bad and so roundly rejected that it never even makes it to its official time period premiere, which would have been two weeks later. Number two, My Mother the Car, which bears repeating, My Mother the Car. It seems that in the early 1960s, the thinking goes that if audiences can accept a talking horse, which they are, happily, every week in a show called Mr. Ed, then they sure can accept a talking 1928 porter. Thus, quote, a situation comedy about a man named Dave, whose deceased mother is reincarnated as an antique car, and she is able to communicate with him through its radio. End quote. My mother, the car, lasts just one season. In 2002, TV Guide proclaims it to be the second worst show of all time, which is either a badge of shame or honor for three of the guys behind it. Alan Burns, who created it and then later helped to create the Maritime the Moore show. Chris Hayward, who created it and went on to produce and write for Barney Miller. And, wait for it, James L. Brooks, Oscar-winning writer and director of Terms of Endearment, among other films, who begins his writing career with an episode of My Mother the Car. Sample early in its run episode for My Mother the Car. Quote, unquote. Dave is forced to drive his mother to a mountaintop wedding, but along the way she gets drunk on antifreeze. My Mother the Car will live on in infamy as the go-to reference and never-out-of-date punchline, indicating the worst that TV can offer. And yet, and yet there's number one, the Brady Bunch Hour. Where to begin? Let's begin with the TV Guide logline for this variety series. Quote, When his family is chosen to star in a new variety series for ABC, Mike Brady gives up his architectural career and moves his family into a beachside home somewhere in Southern California. End quote. Now, with a lot of TV shows, there's always a built-in need for acceptance of its conceit, right? The thing about it that makes its premise just a have-to, something you're willing to accept as a given, to not question, in order to enjoy it. Nuns really can fly. Buffy really is a vampire slayer. There really is only one black person in the New York City of Friends. A horse really can talk. And you know what? A mother really can be a car. But the Brady Bunch hour, that's just way, way, way too much of a buy. How and why does an unknown architect and his unknown family get their own network television show? A variety series, no less. Is it the Johnny Bravo experience? The silver platters exposure? The one time, seven years earlier, when the wife sings a solo during Christmas at church? And why are they announced on air as the Brady Bunch, if that's the name of the TV show about them? Nonetheless, it happens. 
1976, the Brady Bunch Hour happens. The Brady family of Clinton Way is somehow plucked from obscurity and given a TV show, landing a new beach house in the process, where their neighbor is Rip Taylor, and despite the fact that they already live in Southern California. It's all just some sort of fever-induced mandate, as interpreted by ABC head Fred Silverman, after an appearance by four of the original stars of The Brady Bunch on the network's Donnie and Marie Variety series. Goose is the show's already sizable ratings. Hey, you know what? Let's get all nine of them back together again, the whole Brady Bunch, to do more of this, but without Donnie and Marie. So they do. The whole cast is reunited for an hour-long musical variety showcase, a showcase of their lack of musical and variety talent. And the cast performs Babyface and Love to Love You Baby and Shake Your Booty in the first episode. And Robert Reed dances. And Eve Plum is played by Jerry Rochelle. And then over the course of eight more excruciating episodes, Greg sings solos. Corner of the Sky from Pippin. Eric Carmen's All By Myself. Carol sings The Way We Were. Alice sings Make Em Laugh. Jan and Greg sing You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show. Marcia sings Rockin' Robin and Time in a Bottle. And Greg sings again. This time Pinball Wizard. In between, there are family scenes amongst the nine episodes in the now much smaller Brady house. So small that it consists of just a living room with one sofa and one chair. And where comedian Rip Taylor, who may or may not be going by that name, is their Malibu neighbor. And where every single star on ABC's 1976 schedule makes a guest appearance playing themselves, including Tony Randall, Farrah Fawcett, Lee Majors, and Donnie and Marie, who live in Utah. The Brady Bunch Hour is epically bad, or even or especially by standards of the day. Considered by some, in fact, to be the start of end days in Western civilization. Scheduled sporadically from December through May, it airs just those nine times, before putting viewers out of their misery, taking with it the top slot of some people's lists of the worst TV shows ever made. The One Redeeming Grace. No sign of Chachi. You gotta believe. Hey, I'm Jim McCairns. We'll look for each other again next week.
listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.